It was David Martin Lloyd-Jones who wrote, I regard it as a great part of my calling in the ministry to emphasize the priority of the mind and the intellect in connection with faith. But though I maintain that, I am equally ready to assert that feelings, the emotions, the sensibilities, obviously are of very vital importance. Lloyd-Jones was known for advocating for the instruction of the mind. He despised emotionalism in the church. But he said that feelings and emotions are a very vital importance for the Christian individually or for the church at large to ignore or to be dismissive of emotions is dangerous. It is at best naive. At worst, it's a form of serious and sinful negligence. When we don't understand our emotions and how they interact with our Christian faith, then we fail to exercise control over them properly. We end up allowing our emotions to play too big of a role in our decision making. Or we do something even worse, we try to cut them out completely and say they're irrelevant. Both are wrong. Lloyd-Jones, again, explained it this way. Indeed, I suppose one of the greatest problems in our life in this world not only for Christians, but for all people, is the right handling of our feelings and emotions. Oh, the havoc that is wrought and the tragedy, the misery, and the wretchedness that are to be found in the world simply because people do not know how to handle their feelings. The church spends a great deal of time explaining how a person can control their behavior and how they should learn to exercise self-control over their bodies and over their tongues and over their minds. But you're also called to exercise self-control over your emotions. 1 Corinthians 9.25, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. We are called to exercise self-control. And Paul says this is to be done in all things, in every aspect of your life. There's no part of your life that is hidden from this command to exercise self-control. Everything we do must be disciplined. We must be disciplined in our thinking. We must be disciplined in the fulfilling of our desires. And yes, we are also to exercise self-control in our expression and our use of our emotions. Because to leave one of these areas out, to say I'm not going to be exercising self-control in this one area, is to ignore the command given. The command given is to exercise control in all things. That includes your emotions. And for the Christian, the excuse of, well, I can't, simply won't work. Because you have been given the Spirit of God. Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Self-control is the ability to exercise prudence and restraint over your emotions. And it is a fruit of the Spirit. It is something that the Spirit works in you. 
And in fact, the Greek word that Paul uses for self-control, if you look it up in the dictionary, you want to know what the definition is? Quote, restraint of one's emotions, impulses, and or desires. The term self-control assumes you will be controlling and dealing with your emotions. And it's assumed all the way through Scripture. It's assumed by the numerous commands for you to exercise and to experience certain emotions. Yes, the Bible commands you to experience emotion. And it it commands you to express certain emotions. Psalm 100 The psalmist gives a command, serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Gladness here could be translated joy. When you serve the Lord, you are to experience and to manifest the emotion of joy. The next term, to rejoice, is just the manifestation of that joy. It's what you do when you're filled with joy. And both of those commands in Psalm 100 are commands. They're imperatives. They're not suggestions. Jesus in Matthew 12 commanded his disciples, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven. Imperatives. You are commanded to experience and to express the, command, the emotion of joy. Paul in Philippians 3 Verse 1, he says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4, he repeats the command. Chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And in both times, those are imperatives. Those are commands. You are commanded to experience the emotion of joy. Both the Old and the New Testament are filled with commands to experience emotions. In Romans 12, Paul tells Romans they should devote themselves to one another in love. Yes, love is an emotion. It's not only a feeling, but it is an emotion. Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. You're commanded to love one another. You're commanded to love God and to express and to experience the emotion of love for God. We looked at this verse last week. Deuteronomy 6 Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. Clear, unambiguous command to experience an emotion. Colossians chapter 3, he gives us a command not to experience other emotions. Colossians 3, 8, but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Anger is an emotion. And once again, you're commanded to put it aside. To have nothing to do with it. Be done with it. Now think about this for a moment. If your emotions are beyond your control, if your emotions come from outside of you, or there's some part of you that you have no control over, then these commands are nothing more than a cruel act of divine tyranny. It would be the same as commanding you to make sure someone else doesn't sin or holding you accountable for somebody else's sin. If you have no control of your emotions, if your emotions are completely outside of your control, this is a completely unreasonable thing for God to command you to do. 
But God is commanding you to experience these emotions. And if God commands this, then he will judge us according to our obedience of it. Consider for a moment the deeds of the flesh listed in Galatians 5. He starts in verse 19 and he explains the deeds of the flesh. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. Did you notice in that list of behaviors he threw in an emotion? Outburst of anger. In the Greek, it's one word. It refers to an intense displeasure, anger, wrath, or rage. It is an emotion. What does God say about the people who do not deal with and remove this from their life? Galatians 5.21, And these And things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Just as we say you should not live a life in these sinful practices, the Bible also says you should not live a life experiencing and expressing this emotion. And to leave it there and to not deal with it and not to be concerned about it is displeasing to the Lord. If you have trusted in Christ, if you have been given the Holy Spirit, you have the ability to exercise self-control over your emotions. You have the ability to cultivate emotions that are pleasing to Christ. So that leads to a question, the question of the day. How do I do that? How do I exercise control over my emotions? How can I start cultivating emotions that are pleasing to God? Well, today we're going to look at four steps to cultivating godly emotions. Four steps to grasping your emotions. Now, before I get into these four, I do need to say this. God has given you a lot of gifts. One of the gifts is your ability to do things without thinking about it. When you get up in the morning and you go to work, you get out of the car, you open the door, a lot of you have a cup of coffee, you put the coffee in the cup holder, you start the car, you buckle your seatbelt, you put it in drive, and you start going. And you do all of it without thinking about it. You know why you're able to do that? Because God has given you the gift of forming habits. Habits make your life easier. But these same habits, the same ability to form habits also works against us in the Christian life. Because we have the ability to form a habit of doing things the wrong way. And once you form the habit, it's really hard to break. Some of us have habits of expressing and utilizing emotions that we should not be using. We have a habit of thinking about our emotions in the wrong way. And it takes time to work through that and break that habit and undo it. So these are not like instantaneous changes that if you just do these today, tomorrow, you'll never have a problem with your emotions. No, this is a long fight. Okay? But you should begin applying these immediately. So let's look at the first step to cultivating godly emotions. Step number one, stop the excuses. I know that's not what you were expecting for the first step. 
But if we don't stop here, the rest of these steps are pointless. If we're just going to have a whole bunch of excuses as to why I can't do this, why even continue the rest of the sermon? We must start by addressing our false beliefs about emotions. We learned last week that the Bible says that our emotions come from our heart. Not the thing that pumps blood, but that immaterial part of you, your spirit, your soul. It's the part of you that does your thinking. It's the part of you that does your desiring and your planning, your purposing. It's also the part of you that produces emotions. We talked about this last week. You enter into a situation and your heart evaluates that situation based off what you know and what you believe. And it determines your situation is either bad or it's good. If the situation is bad, it produces a negative emotion. If the situation is good, it produces a positive emotion. It's all based on what you think and believe. But if that's true, if your emotions come from the immaterial part of you, from your spirit, then that truth removes any excuse people give for their unbiblical and ungodly emotions. The person who struggles with the sin of anger will tell you that their anger is justified. And they'll justify their anger by pointing at another person and saying, they made me angry. It's their fault that I'm experiencing the emotion of anger. It's not my fault. I got angry because, and then they point their finger at somebody else. Or they point their finger at their circumstances. But do you notice as long as you're blaming somebody else, there's no way you can repent? As long as it's somebody else's fault, you're not responsible. But if the emotion of anger stems from the immaterial being, if it stems from your heart, if it's based on your thinking and your beliefs and your attitudes, then nothing in the physical world can be responsible for your emotion of anger. Nothing in the world can affect your spirit, your immaterial being. Nobody in the world can cause your spirit to do anything. Only you and God can do that. You and you alone are responsible. Emotions are the result of your thinking and your beliefs. And the only person who can change those are you. Or the person who is filled with anxiety and worry. Of course, they have all sorts of reasons for their anxiety and worry. All you need to do is turn on, you know, cable news, the 24-hour news network, and you'll have a multitude of reasons for you to worry. COVID-19, the Delta variant, Afghanistan, a falling dollar, inflation, unemployment, taxes are going up, the Supreme Court, the stock market is falling, real estate prices are out of control and climbing, crime is out of control, corrupt politicians, election fraud, police shooting, racism, and the list goes on. And oh, by the way, murder hornets are back person who wants to be anxious and worried, they can find a million reasons to be anxious and worried. And as long as they're willing to accept the excuse that it's not my fault, it's based on my circumstances, they will forever remain worried and anxious. But a biblical view of emotions, that anxiety is produced in your spirit, from your thinking and from your beliefs and attitudes, that it's not dependent on your circumstances or the events around you. It removes all excuses for continuing to be anxious and worried. There's no reason for it. 
you are not the victim of anxiety. You don't have an anger problem. And you don't have an emotional problem. Your emotions are working just fine. They're doing exactly what God made them do or designed them to do. Let me say it that way. You don't have an emotional problem. You have a sin problem rooted and grounded in thinking and beliefs which create emotions. Brian Borgman, who wrote a book, Feelings and Faith, which has been extremely helpful in the sermon series, he wrote on this and he said, when we stop believing the lies of the devil, when scripture begins to infuse us with hope, and when we start practicing the truth, we believe there is change. Under the influence of the Spirit and word, the Word and the Spirit, we really can begin to handle our emotions. The first step to grasping your emotions and cultivating godly ones, stop the excuses. Own it. These emotions are mine. Your emotions, my emotions, are the result of thinking and beliefs. And they are the direct result of what occurs in your heart, in your spirit, not what is occurring in the world around you. It's the one place the world can't touch is what's going on inside of you. Second step, grasping your emotions. Distinguish godly and ungodly emotions. We need to make some distinctions here because this is theology and that's what we do. The question here is, how do I know which emotions are pleasing to God? And how do I know which ones are not pleasing to him? Do I determine that based on my subjective experience of the emotion? Let me give you an example. Let's just assume I stole a million dollars. Let's assume that. I didn't. And as a result of stealing the million dollars, I get away with it. I don't get caught and I have a million dollars for me. And that produces the experience of joy. Is that a godly emotion to experience? I don't think anyone would hear, here would say that is a godly emotion to experience joy because you stole a million bucks and got away with it. The emotion stems from thinking that stealing is good as long as I can get away with it and as long as it has some temporal benefit to me. The problem there is not the emotion. The emotion is doing exactly what God designed it to do. The problem there is the thinking that created the emotion. Because I think and believe that stealing is okay. The problem here is that my beliefs and my thinking contradict the clear teaching of Scripture. Right emotions are always biblical emotions. Right emotions are always based in thinking that conforms to what God has said about that situation. Remember, your emotion forms when your heart examines your circumstances and just depends on what standard you use to examine your circumstances. If your thinking is in accordance with the word of God, the emotions will be correct. And if your thinking is not according to what God says, your emotions will be wrong. What would be an example of an emotion that is godly, correct, 
Now, the easy one here would be, let's point to joy, but I don't want to use that because you enjoy that experience. Let's go to one that you may not be thinking. The emotion of grieving. Grieving the loss of a loved one. And I choose that because most people would say that is a negative emotion. Why? Because they don't, they don't enjoy the emotion. And they would say, because of my subjective experience, that must be a bad emotion. But when we examine the emotion of grieving according to Scripture, we see that it is a right and good emotion. Scripture gives plenty of examples of people grieving at the death of a loved one. If you turn over to Genesis chapter 23, Genesis 23, we learn of the death of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Despite his failures in his marriage, he did love his wife greatly. And that love is manifested in his grieving after her death. Genesis 23, verse 2. Sarah died in Kirath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Mourning and weeping are part of the grieving process. Lamenting and expressing sorrow over the loss of a person you love is right and it's godly. Turn over to Genesis 49. We have another story here. This is the grandson of Abraham, Jacob. Jacob dies, and he dies in the presence of one of his sons, his son Joseph. Remember, he went all the way down to Egypt to see Joseph, who he thought was dead. Genesis 49, verse 33. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Jacob dies. I want you to see Joseph's response. Genesis 50, verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And there's many, many more examples throughout Scripture that you can go and see people mourning and grieving the loss of a loved one. Even Jesus in John 11, verse 11, he speaks of Lazarus and he calls him our friend. And then he goes to the tomb where Lazarus is buried. And what does it say in verse 35? The shortest verse in all of Scripture. Jesus wept. And even the Pharisees standing there understood that what was going on was grieving because Jesus loved him. They actually said, see how he loved him. Grieving after the death of a loved one is perfectly godly and right, even if it doesn't feel good. When someone you love dies, your tears, your sadness is proof that God blessed you with their life. That they were a blessing to you from God. And that God used them to work in your life and to be a blessing to you. And your tears are just a recognition that that blessing is no longer around. The grieving process is a gift given to you by God. That emotion is a gift given. Howard Eyrick has a little book on grieving. And he says grieving really isn't about the person who died. Because they've gone to be with the Lord. The grieving process is about those who remain. He wrote, I don't grieve for the person who is lost, but for my own resultant loss. 
In grief, God gives us temporary permission to focus on ourselves. What a gift. The expression of this emotion is right and it's godly. And as you turn through the pages of Scripture, you will find it demonstrated over and over and over again. And it's never, ever said to be wrong. Then there are emotions in Scripture that we should not have in our life. Emotions like worry and anxiety. Turn over to Joshua 22. Because we need to make a distinction here. Anxiety and worry is being overly concerned about your circumstances. This is an... You're too concerned about your circumstances. But there is a right way to have godly concern. There is a right way to be concerned about the things in your life and the things going on. God does not want you to be apathetic to the world around you. He does want you to be concerned about the world around you. But that concern should be restrained and should never transform into anxiety and worry. And I want to show you an example of that, of appropriate concern. In Joshua 22, the nation, has, the nation of Israel has gone into the promised land. And there are three tribes, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, who decide they're going to build an altar in Canaan. And the news of this altar spread to the other tribes, and the other tribes thought, oh my goodness, these three are turning from Yahweh, we're in trouble. We need to go down there and tell them, stop this, tear that thing down, and if they don't, we need to wipe them out. So they go and meet with these other three tribes to try to figure out what's going on. Joshua 22, verse 16. Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this unfaithful act which you have committed against the God of Israel, turning away from following the Lord this day by building yourselves an altar to rebel against the Lord this day? Let me say it another way. Why have you done this? What are you doing? But I want you to notice their response in verse 24. Notice he says, but truly we have done this out of concern for a reason, saying in time to come your sons may say to our sons, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? Why did they build this altar? Because they wanted to rebel against Yahweh? Because they wanted to turn from Yahweh? No. Because they were concerned about the future of their own children. And they wanted to make sure that their children never turned away from Yahweh. So they built this altar as a memorial so that their children would see and remember what Yahweh did for them. This is a godly and correct concern. A godly concern always leads a person to act. It leads to action that is honoring to Christ. Ungodly concern we call anxiety. And it does the exact opposite. Proverbs 12.25 is a really good verse. Proverbs 12.25, anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down. But a good word makes it glad. The phrase weighs it down, the root here refers to cowering or bowing down, being humbled. And when you apply it to the heart, it means to wallow to become depressed or melancholy. A person with anxiety is weighed down. They're frozen and paralyzed by fear. They don't know how to act. They don't know how to respond. They don't know what they're supposed to do about whatever problem they're facing. 
And because they have nothing they can do about the problem, they just sit there thinking about it and worrying about it. And while they're thinking and worrying about it, they put off the things that they should be doing, you know, like sleeping at night. Their hearts and minds are not filled with thoughts of Christ. The command in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, is not true of them at that moment. They're hyper-focused on themselves and on their surroundings and on whatever the problem happens to be. The anxious heart believes that the only solution to their situation is found in themselves or in their circumstances. They have come to believe that God is not in control of that situation. That God does not care for them, that he's not paying attention. This is faulty belief. This is faulty thinking. It's at the root of anxiety. This is an ungodly emotion founded in unbiblical thinking. If you want to change the emotion, you must start with the thinking and the beliefs that caused it. And this brings us to the third step to grasping your emotions. Change your thinking. Change your thinking. The reality is you cannot alter your emotions directly. Why? Because your emotions come from your spirit. You really don't alter your spirit directly. You have to alter your emotions by dealing with the underlying thoughts and desires that created those emotions. You have to begin by aligning your thoughts with what Scripture says. Fill your mind with Scripture. Let Scripture be the lens through which your heart examines everything. The lens through which your heart interprets every situation. And when your heart examines the world according to Scripture, you know what it's going to produce? Godly emotions. Sometimes those emotions are going to be grieving and you're not going to enjoy it, but it's still right and good. Sometimes those emotions are going to be things like joy and gladness. But if they are all founded in right thinking according to the Word of God, they are good and they are godly. So let's return back for a moment to the emotion of anxiety. And I want to begin by first pointing out that anxiety is clearly forbidden throughout Scripture. Philippians 4, 6, well-known verse, beginning of it, be anxious for nothing. Absolutely nothing. Do not engage in the emotion of worry and anxiety for any reason. But why? Why shouldn't we do that? What unbiblical thinking leads a person into anxiety? Anxiety is rooted in a fundamental distrust of God. At its core, the anxious person does not trust that God can or will care and provide for them. They don't believe what Scripture says. And their anxiety proves it. Last week I said that the emotions are the... the a gateway to the soul. You see what they actually believe? The anxious person does not actually believe what Scripture says about this area of life. They might believe that there's something that God does not control. Or maybe they believe that there's something that God is unwilling to control. Or maybe they do believe that God is in control. They just don't think He's going to do what's best for them. 
And in each case, they fundamentally refuse to place their trust in God. They choose instead to trust in themselves, to trust in their circumstances, or to trust in the people around them. And we can see this, if you want to turn your Bibles, Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah has some interesting comments on the issue of anxiety. And he specifically discusses people who put their trust in someone or something other than God. Jeremiah 17.5, actually, when you get home, you can read through all of these verses. It's really helpful. Jeremiah 17.5, he says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Notice the issue here is who are you trusting? What are you trusting in? The word here for trust refers to feeling secure by looking to that person or thing. Finding a sense of security by depending on a person or an object. And when you think about that person or object, you feel better. Well, I know we're going to be okay because my guy got elected as president. It's not actually true, but okay. And now I know my nation is going to be secure. I know for a fact it's secure because I can trust this guy. Or others say, well, I have so much money in the bank. I've got a million dollars in the bank. That's also not true. But I know I have enough money. I can weather any storm. And now I can feel secure. Jeremiah 17.5 says, cursed is that man. They have turned their heart away from trusting in God. They have turned from Yahweh. They're trusting in their flesh. They're looking to sinful men to provide security rather than looking to God. If you place your trust in a politician, you're going to be severely disappointed. If you place your trust in yourself, you're going to be severely disappointed. I don't know about you, I can look back in my life and see all the times I tried that and it failed miserably. Israel was looking to horses and military might and military strength and economic success to provide security for itself so they can feel secure. Jeremiah 17, jump down to verse 7. He gives the antidote. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield its fruit. The man who trusts in Yahweh will not be anxious. Regardless of the circumstance, he says drought. Drought in biblical times was devastating. They didn't have H-E-B that they can go to. If drought came and all your crops died, they called it a famine. People were going to die shortly thereafter. All society depended on crops. And for a drought to come would cause serious anxiety if they were not trusting in Yahweh. 
And in Jeremiah 17, Yahweh says through Jeremiah, even if drought comes, even if something that could wipe out your entire society shows up, the person who trusts in Yahweh will not be anxious. Why? Because they're trusting not in man, they're trusting in the Lord. They're trusting in God, the one who never messes it up, the one who never makes a mistake. He gets it right every time. When you become anxious or you become worried, you need to recognize that your anxiety is not coming from outside of you. It's not something that's dependent on your circumstances. You're not a victim of your circumstances. Your anxiety is the result of unbiblical thinking. Thinking that places your trust in you or your circumstances or your money or the world around you or a politician or whatever it is that you're trusting in. And you need to change your thinking. Repent from trusting in yourself. Start believing the promises of God. What are some of those promises? Dealing specifically with anxiety. Turn over to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we don't have time to read the whole section. This will be starting in uh, verse 25. The best way to cure anxiety and deal with anxiety is to remember what God has promised to you and to remember how much God cares for you. Again, we don't have time to read all of this, but let me just point out a couple of verses. Matthew 6, verse 25, Jesus said, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And this is the point where someone will say, yes, but I really need to be able to eat. And if I lose my job, if I don't have money, I'm not going to be able to eat or feed my family, and we're all going to die. You don't understand. This is really important. Jesus said none of those reasons, as important as those things are, none of them are sufficient reasons for you to be anxious or for you to be worried. And he gives some illustrations of God's provision and how God cares for his creation. Jump down to verse 31. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. He feeds the birds of the air. He clothes the lilies of the field. He knows what you need, and if he knows what you need, the implication is he will provide everything you need. He is your heavenly Father. We have some parents in the room. Scripture uses terms like Father so we can understand. Are there any parents in the room who would refuse to feed your children when they're hungry? Any parents in the room who are willing to let your kids go without what they need? I'm not talking about they go without a PlayStation. We're not talking about that. Something they actually need. And if you say no to that question but you still deal with anxiety because you're not sure God is going to give you what you need? Well, do you think you're a better parent than God? Or do you think he was derelict in his duties? God is your loving father. If you're in Christ, he is your father. 
and he loves you and he cares for you and he has promised to provide all that you need. And if you're anxious or worried, you have forgotten the promise. You have forgotten what he has said and you're believing something that you should not be believing. Think of what Peter said, 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. He says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Did you hear that? He cares for you. And because he cares for you, you are to cast all of your worries, all of your fears on him to trust him to take care of those concerns, to take care of those needs. And you are to entrust yourself to his loving care and provision. You're to trust him because everyone and everything else will fail you. There's nothing else that will provide. Other people are sinful. They're going to fail. You and I are sinful. We're going to fail. And you all know this. And that's why you're anxious. Because no, you're putting your trust in a person that's going to fail. Put your trust in Yahweh. He never fails. Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. When you become anxious, remember who God is. Remember He's your loving Father who cares for you and then turn back to Him and entrust Him with it. Confess your sin of worry and anxiety. Cast them onto him and ask him to deal with those things. And then trust that he's actually going to do it. And guess what? You're going to have to keep reminding yourself of this because you've built up that habit of worry. You know what happens when you do that? I just read Philippians 4, 6. Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When you set your mind to what Scripture says and you believe what Scripture says and you adjust and change your thinking, you know what happens? You get a positive, correct emotion, the peace of God. The key to grasping the emotion of anxiety is changing your thinking. Start trusting that God will care for you just as He has promised. All right, we've seen three steps to grasping your emotions. Stop the excuses, distinguish godly and ungodly emotions, change your thinking. Last one, step four. Act on what you know. Act on what you know. There's not a single verse in all of Scripture that commands, suggests, or recommends that you follow your feelings and emotions. Not a single time does Scripture encourage you to follow any of your feelings. The Bible says you are to obey the commands of Scripture regardless of how you feel. And we get this out of order. When we put the, heart, the cart before the horse and we start saying, well, I'm going to chase after how I feel, I'm going to chase after an emotion, it leads to justifying all sorts of sin and rebellion against God. When I wake up in the morning, just a little confession here, there are some mornings I don't want to pray. Have you ever had that happen? You wake up and you're like, I know I should go pray, I just don't feel like it. 
I know I'm commanded to pray always, but this morning, not feeling it. I shouldn't act on how I feel. I shouldn't act according to what my emotions say. I should choose to obey God. I should act on what I know the Bible says, and I should ignore the feeling. Because I know that feeling is grounded and rooted in bad thinking and bad beliefs. Me waking up in the morning saying, I don't feel like praying, is evidence that somewhere in my heart there's enough pride that thinks I don't need to pray. I can do this without him. And to act on that feeling, to set aside what God has said in favor of acting on my pride or the whims of bodily sensations, is sinful. It's important that you understand this. This is a very important point. Your behavior affects how you feel. Your behavior affects how you feel. Your actions affirm whatever motivated them. That is to say, if you act on a belief that lying is wrong and sinful, and therefore you take positive steps throughout your life to ensure that you always tell the truth, that you're unwilling to lie for anything, at, for any reason, and you give the truth at all costs, if you act on that belief continually, you know what happens? That truth will go from being a biblical fact in your head to being a firm conviction of your heart. That's how you form convictions, by acting on what you profess to believe. And the same is true with behavior and emotions. When you act according to unbiblical emotions, it affirms those unbiblical emotions. I want to use an example of depression, and I want to say this first of all. There are medical reasons someone might feel depressed. And so if you're dealing with depression, go see a, a medical doctor, like your family doctor, and ask them to do a checkup to see if there's any medical reason you would be feeling depressed. I want to say that up front. But let's just say a person goes to the doctor, they don't have any medical problems, but they are depressed. And they start acting on how they feel, rather than what Scripture says. Well, they wake up in the morning, the alarm goes off, they're supposed to go to work, but eh, I don't feel like going to work, I don't feel like getting out of bed, so I'm going to call into work today. They start neglecting responsibilities. They start procrastinating on important tasks and putting them off. And you know what happens? They put off things like, you know, making their bed, cleaning the house. And the more they put off, the worse they feel. Because they recognize there's just now a pile of things that they have to do. And now they have a whole bunch of new things that are going on. And now guilt and shame come in. And they feel even worse. And instead of helping the depression, it just makes them feel more depressed. In the pursuit of a positive emotion or a good feeling, people will also turn to things like drugs and alcohol. And they turn there because they think that they can medicate a negative emotion. It's not a sickness. It's a medication that they're using. And they'll tell you, I drink so I can feel better. They medicate the emotion. Rather than seeking to be pleasing to Christ and everything, they begin seeking a positive feeling. 
seeking a good emotion, and they turn to drunkenness for the solution. Notice, they disobeyed a command of Scripture just so they can feel good. They didn't act on what they believe. They didn't act on what they know the Bible says. And that relief that they get from either procrastinating, putting things off, not fulfilling responsibilities, alcohol, drugs, any kind of sin that they go to, that relief is always short-lived. And when they sober up, the underlying thoughts and attitudes that led to the depression in the first place are still there. The problem still remains. And if they still don't act on what they believe, on what they know, you know what they're going to do? They're going to go right back to the alcohol again and think it can medicate the problem. And it's just a downward spiral. The solution is to stop seeking the emotion. The goal of the Christian in life is not to have a good feeling. The goal of the Christian life is to be pleasing to Christ in everything. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Therefore we have we also have our, as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Colossians 1.10, to be pleasing to him in every respect, in every way, in everything that we do. Our goal is not to feel good. Our goal is not to have an emotional experience. Our goal is to be pleasing to Christ. You do that by obeying what you know Scripture says. And as you obey Scripture, as you act in accordance with what God says, you will experience godly emotions. If the person who's feeling depressed would get out of bed and just take one small step, start making your bed again. Start adding back those little responsibilities in believing what God says. It's not an overnight solution, but you will start feeling better. And yes, I have scripture for this. You can see this in the story of Cain and Abel. Turn over to Genesis chapter 4. This will be our last verse, our last little passage here. It's a well-known story. Cain and Abel offer sacrifices to God. Cain's sacrifice is not accepted. His brother's is accepted. And as a result, Cain becomes angry. Genesis 4, verse 6, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? Why are you angry? You don't need me to explain that. Why has your countenance fallen? Countenance literally refers to his face. Why has your face fallen? The term actually refers to showing the back of the neck because the face has fallen. Cain became angry with God. God didn't do what he wanted. And he became depressed. And so God gives him a solution. God doesn't tell him, go get some antidepressants. He doesn't tell him, go drink. He doesn't tell him to chase an experience. Verse 7 if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Did you catch it? If you do well, your countenance will be lifted. Right behavior leads to positive emotions. Sinful behavior leads to negative emotions. 
Right living, right feeling. Wrong living, bad feeling. Sin always brings in shame. It always brings in guilt. It'll never make you feel better. The only way you can feel better is by seeking to please Christ in everything you do, and you do that by acting on what you know. If you keep chasing the positive emotion and ignoring the commands of Scripture, your situation only gets worse. Genesis 4, verse 7 again. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. The more you chase the feeling and the experience, the more you'll justify going into sin and the worse you will feel. If you want to break the cycle, you need to step back and change your behavior. Start acting on what you know. Cain didn't take the advice. And his situation didn't get any better. It resulted in him murdering his brother. Don't be like Cain. Don't act on how you feel. Act on what you know. This morning, if you feel like you're in a spiritual rut, like you've been separated from God, that you can't get to God anymore, one of the best cures is changing your behavior. Start acting on what you know to be true. Start being obedient in the little things. You don't have to take something big. Take something small. Let your behavior begin affirming the truth of Scripture. So how else can behavior affect your emotions? You can, one, just start being obedient in little things. Here's one other thing you can do. Sing hymns. Sing hymns. No, not the 7-11 courses. Seven verses repeated 11 times. Not those. I think we talked about that at home group. No, sing good, rich theological hymns that are filled with the truth of Scripture. Music has a way of pushing truth into your head. That's why when you were kids, you learned the ABCs in a song, and most of us today can't say the ABCs without singing it. There are a few things that will give you positive, godly emotions, like singing hymns. You want to start grasping your emotions? Take the four steps. Stop the excuses. No more blaming other people or situations for your emotions. Second, distinguish godly and ungodly emotions. Evaluate your emotions according to the thinking and whether that thinking is in accordance with Scripture. Change your thinking when you find that it's not in accordance with Scripture. Align your mind to what Scripture says about that situation. And that new knowledge will produce godly emotions. Sometimes that emotion will be negative like grieving. But it at least will be pleasing to God. And finally, act on what you know. Make decisions on what Scripture says, not on how you feel about it. Act on what you know. Again, these are not quick fixes. But through the grace of Christ and the aid of His Spirit, you can begin grasping your emotions in a practical way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that your word is so applicable. It truly is sufficient for the Christian life. There is nothing that you have left us to guess on, even a topic like emotions. We can go to your word and we can find the truth of what you say about them.
They don't have to remain an enigma to us. And through your spirit and through the grace of Christ, we can cultivate emotions that are pleasing to you. We can keep the command of Colossians 1 to be pleasing to you in all respects, and that includes even our emotions. And so we ask that you would help each of us to do that, to begin striving to honor and to glorify you through the right expression of godly emotions. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.